Well, good morning. One of the privileges of my situation, uh, travelling to work in other parts of the country quite a lot uh, when I'm not working here, I work here two days a week, is that I hear many stories and I meet many people who are involved in the most wonderful, powerful, significant thing that's happening in, this, in the nation at the moment and that is the advance of the Kingdom of God and particularly growing churches and planting new churches. Do you agree with that? And that's what God is doing around the world. He's causing his church to move forward even in very difficult situations and even in very complex cultures and even in our own nation where people seem half asleep spiritually sometimes, the church is moving forward. And as I travel around, one of the privileges I have is talking to people about how those churches are going, how those churches are led, which is what we're talking about this morning, And what's happening? Can I just give you just a quick comment on conversations I've had this week? By chance, so so to speak. I was at a conference in one city in the south of England and I noticed there were leaders from two of the largest and fastest growing churches in the whole of the country. Members of those teams or leaders of those teams. One of them is in our wider New Frontiers family and the other church is friendly to our family but not associated with us directly but he was there for a particular conference and as it happened and I'm quite skillful at making these happen I managed to talk to them. You know the manoeuvring of coffee queues and things like that I'm very, very skilled at it. So I'm able to see the stories And in both these cases, the churches have gone from 40 or 50 people to start with to, we're talking thousands. Astonishing miracles and growth. Now obviously it's the raw gift of leadership that makes this happen, more than the structures. Let's be really honest about it. It's a charisma. A church can only grow to the extent of its leadership capacity. But the structures count. How you set things up counts. And these people have been very diligent to raise up new leaders, to build teams and to multiply leadership functions and they're seeing a great reward. The following day I was at a different meeting in a different city in the north of England and I sat next to somebody who was planting a church in an inner city but from a kind of liberal church background, if you understand what I mean. Not really holding very precise understanding of the gospel and evangelism and so on. So I said to them, how how are you doing it? Same idea, we need to plant churches. And uh, this person said to me, well, we've had to deconstruct all our denominational structures and we've had to create a kind of democracy. We don't really want all this hierarchical leadership We need just to hear the voice of the people. So I then just asked a few more questions, found out that they're struggling to grow the church more than 25 people. Despite hard work and good intention and much love. There are reasons for these differentials. 
And if we think of the whole world, uh, we think we're at the church planting movement across the world is just growing at phenomenal pace in many countries. But as soon as you start planting churches and establishing churches, you're faced with questions about how you construct a leadership that's full of life, creativity, development, space for, for growth of other people, for growing churches, planting new churches, sending people off to do things, equipping people in the workplace, social action, and all the other things that we need to do. So these are rather important questions. And what we're going to do this morning, in a moment, is we're just going to take a snapshot overview of the New Testament. Because what, what I'm thinking about now, in a small way, in a very modest kind of way, the Apostle Paul was thinking about in an absolutely huge way. And he and his colleagues were planting churches intentionally and cross-culturally, different nations, in all sorts of different ways. And it's interesting to think, how did they set things up and why did they set things up the way they did? Would you think that's an interesting question? It's rather an important question for us if we affirm the Scriptures. So we're going to come to that story and I'm just going to tell you a little bit of that story, draw one or two conclusions and dig out some of the detail this evening. But before we get there, think of the apostles. Jesus said, right, go, go to the nations, go to the Jews, go to the Samaritans, go to the Gentiles, go to the ends of the earth, keep going, plant churches, evangelize, heal the sick. And off they went. And Paul tells us the story, most of all, through his letters. He tells us more than anyone else. And his colleague, Luke, tells us the story of what happened in the book of Acts. And so Paul and Luke are kind of the narrators of this process, most of all. But I want to tell you five things that Paul had in mind before I tell you what he did. Are you up for this? Five things that Paul had in mind. Thinking about how people relate to each other, how the genders relate to each other, how teams are built, all those other dynamics. Here's the first thing that Paul had in mind. It's the point that Terry made very well last week. Jesus was a servant leader. So Christian leadership, by definition, is a function of service and self-sacrifice. It's not a power game. As soon as you get to the power game in the church, you'll see spectacular falls from grace. The minister who controls the money. The minister with a secret, covert relationship with a female member of his staff. The minister who's trying to take over his denomination. The minister who's trying to make money out of satellite television for his own private purse. This is anathema to the Christ-like servant spirit that Jesus called us to live by. Terry's made the point well. Paul had it in mind. I don't have anything further to say on it, but simply to underline it. Secondly, Paul had something else in mind. He thought a lot about God himself. Now, God himself is a mystery to us, but he's a trinity. 
was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know they're equally God. They're separate persons. Can't just be mushed together into one person. They are separate persons. And yet, in an extraordinary way, when it came to the mission to save mankind, not necessarily in other functions of the Godhead, but in the mission to save mankind, the persons of the Trinity took different responsibilities and roles to, res- to achieve the goal of saving you and I from eternal darkness. Paul had this in mind that the Father sent the Son. The Son did not send the Father. The Father didn't come to the earth. The Son came to the earth. The Father didn't become a man, but the Son became a man. The roles were different. And it was the Son who died and rose again and ascended again and returned to the right hand of the Father. And then the Father and the Son together according to John's Gospel, sent the Holy Spirit in power to be the living presence of God in the church and here he is today, by the way. Can I say something? He's here. And what he's doing in us, stirring us up to obedience, but also causing us to have revelation of Christ and the Father and salvation and our own callings and giving us gifts and graces and many other wonderful things. Paul had in mind the servant role of Jesus. He had in mind that even God was able in certain functions of the Trinity, in this case the mission to save you and me, to take on different roles in perfect harmony. And Paul also knew that man was created in the image of God, male and female, equal yet distinct. What else did Paul have in mind? He had in mind that extraordinary story of creation. He quotes it twice, so we know he had it in mind. He quotes it in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2. Whether you take this literally or symbolically, you get the same outcome. And I won't argue the point either way. But it says in Genesis 2 that God created Adam. Took him aside and said, look Adam, here's the garden. You take care of it. And very quickly Adam realised he wasn't going to do it on his own, he was going to do it together with Eve in partnership. But he heard that command on his own. And he heard another command, Adam, there's a lot of great trees around in this garden. They're all beautiful and they're all wonderful. But there's just one that I don't want you to touch. And then God created Eve and brought Adam and Eve together. And then sadly the fall came in which both are implicated. But the strange thing is 
that Adam is given in Scripture the primary responsibility for what went wrong. Because it says very interestingly in Genesis 3, although the Eve succumbed to the temptation, Eve succumbed to the temptation, Adam was there. He was with her. But inactive. Not remembering that he'd been given that responsibility of remembering that command and following the way. Now Paul had this in mind. We know that. Paul also had in mind an understanding of marriage whereby the husband was given the responsibility to, as it were, model Adam's responsibility by taking the primary responsibility for saying in the marriage and family, what is the will of God? What is the right thing that we should be aiming at? And being the first one to submit himself to that process, aligning his life with God's greater will and encouraging the rest of his family to do it. Ephesians 5. And the final thing Paul had in mind was that he could see a very close analogy between the family and the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he describes the church as the household or family of God. Now, these are things that Paul had in mind, whether we're comfortable with them or not. We'll we'll come to that in a minute, but those are things that Paul had in mind. Something of the imprint of God in creation, in terms of partnerships, was going to be prophetically represented to the human race through both the Christian family and the Christian church in a unique way. Those are things that Paul, we know, had in mind. But let's now just turn to the interesting question. What actually happened when the church begun. Well, we started with the apostles, but very quickly in Jerusalem, they appointed elders. They just appear in the text. The apostles and elders just appear together. So they've got kind of leaders of the church there. And then they realized very, very quickly as the church grew, we need lots of different types of leaders operating in the church. They had a huge social crisis in the church, in their food bank of all places. The daily distribution of food, it says in Acts 6. It was contested because the different groups of Jews there, some seemed to get the food and the others didn't, particularly the widows, and they were complaining that there was a racial distinction or a kind of social distinction going on there. The apostles said, right, we need to appoint some people to take care of this responsibility, the practical care and the spiritual and pastoral leadership to help resolve this issue. So we see leaders multiplying into different teams, even in the church in Jerusalem. And as Paul and Barnabas went around planting churches, it's very interesting what they did. We see in their first missionary journey that they went into a place, they preached the gospel, gathered some converts, and then they sometimes had to leave in a rush, or they moved on to the next place. And then very interestingly in Acts 14 we find they come back to the same places a little bit of time later, And they say, now we need to appoint elders. Acts 14. Elders. And so in discussion with the church, they appointed suitable leaders in those churches in order to give some structure to those churches. We see at least two levels of leadership in the church. Elders and what we would call... Deacons, we don't use the word deacon in this church particularly, but a deacon is a leader. Serving leader who's taking a responsibility for an aspect of the church life. Basically, that's what it is. 
as you read the New Testament and you read it carefully, it's quite interesting to see the stories and not just the teaching. I find this one really fascinating. I've never heard anyone preach on this before. But uh, since I'm up here, I'm going to do it now. Um, I love speaking on texts that I've never heard anyone speak on before. I'm a great student of the book of Romans. And one of the things I noticed when I studied it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, about ten years ago, was in Romans 16, Paul speaks about an officer in the church at a place called Kencrea, which is near where he was at the time. He was in Corinth and he was sending a church to Rome and just down the road, about five miles down the road, is a place called Kencrea. And um, the officer is a deacon in the church, not an elder, but a deacon. And the name is Phoebe, it's a lady. It says in Romans 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Kencrea, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need for you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, I just love to imagine what this all means. He's established a church in Kenkria. She's a deacon there, so she's an officer in the church there. And for some reason, she's going from, from Corinthian area to Rome, which means going across the Adriatic Sea, probably. And she's going to Rome. Why is she going to Rome? Many scholars think because she's actually carrying the epistle to the Romans. She's actually designated as an official in the church to take it with greetings and instructions on how to use it and so forth to the church in Rome. Now, I'm glad that Paul gave the letter to Romans to an officer of the church and not to just Joe Bloggs the tradesman who, sorry, Paul, accidentally it fell over the side of the ship uh, while I was uh, sightseeing on the way to Rome. No, it didn't, fall out of, uh, it didn't fall out of Phoebe's bag, I can tell you. She guarded it, and you're reading it today because she guarded it across the Adriatic Sea because she was an officer of the church taking her responsibility seriously and Paul had no hesitation in saying, right, you do that, give the instructions, and she had her role back in the church. Just an interesting little insight into the New Testament church at work. There's a snapshot that I love. This is the only verse that's coming up on the screen uh, today. Two verses. In fact, it's the only slide. You'll be glad to know. This is what I wanted you to capture. Now, this is a really beautiful verse. Philippians was a mature and secure church that Paul planted working in strategic relationship with him. Some of the others were a bit hairy. Things went wrong. They were going pretty well in Philippi. Paul was in jail at this point and they'd sent a guy called Epaphroditus to help him in jail. He was really grateful. He was sending Epaphroditus back and this is how he addresses the church. And scholars have said, here is uh, studying this passage. You might just sort of read over this and not really think anything about it, but scholars have said, well, this is just like a snapshot of the early church as Paul really wanted it to be in its maturity. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers, another word for elders, and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's the New Testament church, as Paul saw it. The members, the people, the overseers, 
the deacons, that's other leaders serving in other functions, in harmony together, on a mission with Paul, helping him in other places, but doing a great job in Philippi. That's really what he wanted for all the churches. We'll leave that up on the screen because that's the verse we're going to just ponder today. Now let's just have a think as we leave that up on the screen. In the New Testament, what actually was the role of an elder? It's all very well using a term, but what does it actually mean? Here are the little snapshot ideas that we get from the New Testament. They're overseers. That essentially means protecting from danger, watching over and encouraging life and ministry. I've thought about this a lot over the years and many years ago when I was thinking about these issues more substantially than I have done uh, recently, I was researching these kind of issues in the family and I remember being in the church, an Anglican church, and there's a lady there who was the wife of the minister there who'd written some really interesting books on fatherhood and male identity. She was a counsellor. Her name was Mary Pitches, a well-known Christian writer from a previous generation. And, as I do, in the coffee queue, you can guess what's coming next, I could see her across the room and I said to my wife, Jane, I think I'm just going to have a little conversation. Jane's used to this with uh, this lady. So I just sidled up to her and said, you don't know me me, and I don't know you. But I want you to explain to me, in the context of the family, the essence of fatherhood. Now, it's not the sort of thing that most people like being asked in the coffee queue in the church. A lot of people can get a bit prickly at that point. She just smiled. And I had one of the shortest and most profound conversations I've ever had in my life. She said it's like this. The father draws the circle around the family. Protection and security in which life may grow and flourish to the maximum extent within God's will and purposes. This is an ideal world, of course. And I looked at her and quite honestly, I didn't really know what to say except, thank you very much. Because I thought that's a beautiful way of expressing it. And I thought of Adam, that sacred task that he was given and was unable to fulfill. And I thought of Paul's analogy between the family and the church. And all this doesn't seem to me about power and control. It seems to me about finding ways of letting life grow and develop. But being willing to stand at the door and guard, which I can tell you as an elder, I and my colleagues, we do have to do that at times. And to defend. I said very recently concerning the Brexit thing, if racial issues emerge in our town and if they affect Christians of other nationalities, we will stand and defend them. It's our responsibility. We do it gladly. And secondly, shepherds, pastoral care. And thirdly, teachers, 
Now what I'm going to explain tonight, but I haven't got time to explain this morning, is that when Paul uses this concept of teaching, particularly in the pastoral epistles, he's using it about the guardianship of doctrine, not necessarily the delivery of everything. It's the guardianship, the protection of the gospel, and the protection of biblical doctrine is a very sacred and vital task in churches. And if we neglect it, troubles come in slowly and surely and gradually derail the church. We'll talk more about that this evening. Overseers, shepherds, teachers and leaders. These are the sort of words we might use for elders. What about deacons? Well, I've said quite a lot about it already. We don't use the term deacon and the only reason we don't use it is because in our culture, historical church culture, it's become a word that's very complicated and we're not sure whether we want to resurrect that term. We could do. Some churches I know have done it recently. The trouble is the deacons in the old-fashioned church set up that many of you would be familiar with, tidied up after the service, made sure that the church building was clean, counted the money, all good functions, but they don't capture the biblical concept of deaconing enough. Deaconing is leading. Within the wider framework, some part of the ministry of God's church might be financial, might be practical, might be mercy ministries, it might be evangelism, might be anything. We need to capture the fact that leadership gifts are very varied and multiplied in church. And there are at least two dimensions, an eldership role and a deaconing role. And as churches get bigger, I notice that they, have, they, they subdivide those categories. They have more operational elders and more strategic elders. They have more bigger scale deaconing and smaller scale deaconing. And I've seen that formalized in the churches in South Korea I visited. But the principle is you've got these two dynamic functions working together. And that's what makes healthy churches. Now, when we get to Paul's specific instructions concerning, concerning elders and deacons, particularly in 1 Timothy 3, uh, a little bit in 1 Timothy 5, and a bit in Titus chapter 1, we'll come to these this evening, we find teams of elders working with teams of deacons as the most dynamic expression of what the New Testament church was to be. But what we do find, and this is the key issue that a lot of people feel uncomfortable about in some parts of the church, is that in their example, in Paul's example, the elders were men. They were representing the fatherly role of the family in the church, an analogous, divinely instituted uh, institution. Now, the modern evangelical church has been reviewing this distinction and we'll discuss that more this evening. We know that deacons were men and women from the example I gave. So, Paul had his paradigm. What do we see in the church today in this country? Here are a few little snapshots for you. I wonder whether you'll recognise any of these. I was in a church not so long ago. It used to be a very large church. It's now a little bit smaller. 
with a very, very well-known leader of a previous generation. Um, you'd recognize the name. I was speaking to some of, he, he'd retired some time ago, speaking to some of the uh, senior people in the church about how they structured their church. And they said, well, he was the pastor and he preached and there were the deacons. And when one day we said to him, do you think we should have an eldership? He said, when we have an eldership, I'll give you 30 days before I resign. Now that's an old-fashioned model, very prevalent in the previous generation. Did he know that it was in the Bible? Yes, he did. Did he want to do it? No, he didn't. And he never did. He wanted to be on his own. It's not what we see in the New Testament. And then we see sometimes in the church, successful churches which are built around what I would call a really charismatic personality, a really strong personality. The leadership structure around is a bit unclear or whatever, but it's, the closer you get to it, you realise that this one person is the driving force and it all focuses around this one person. And then when this one person moves on, there's usually a major crisis. Because eldership has not been built, succession has not been built. This happens time and time again. There can be succession in that situation, but it very rarely happens. And then, I wonder whether you're familiar with this at the other end of the spectrum. There are people gathering in our country by their thousands who said, we're fed up with formal church structures, we're charismatics, we've got the spirit, we've got the grace of God. We're just going to have an informal church. Who's the leader of your group? Well, we don't really have a leader. We just sit around and chat about who's going to, who's going to do what and we just have an informal house church. Are you familiar with that? All over the country, there are thousands of groups like that. Well-intentioned, usually built out of disappointment in other contexts, but almost always run into the sand within a generation. Then, of course, there's the denominational structure when I talk to my Anglican friends, they use all sorts of language that I'm not familiar with. They're not talking about elders and deacons, they're talking about vicars and curates and staff teams and PCCs and church wardens. So they have a whole nother discussion as to how they fit that together with the biblical norm, which I'm not even going to go down there because I don't have the skill. But it gets interesting for them. And they do sometimes say things to me privately which are quite funny about the process. The best development, the best pattern is the New Testament teams of elders with teams of deacons both being robust and strong teams growing, developing, multiplying as needed. That's what Paul started with and I propose that's what the church needs to continue with from now until the second coming. So tonight, for those who are interested, who can be taken away from the delights of Euro 2016 final and Wimbledon, we can pursue these questions in a bit more detail. You can fit it in between the two, mostly. 
play second half of the football, that sort of thing, you know. So here in Barnabas, we, our views are essentially, as I've indicated, that we haven't yet been convinced that the biblical framework that Paul outlined there should be modified in any way. There's been lots of discussion about it and I'll indicate the contours of that discussion this evening. However, we do respect very much other churches. If I meet an Orthodox priest or a Catholic priest or a denominational team with different principles of leadership and if Dave works with them frequently, for us it's not an issue. What they do is up to them. We'll work with them. That's fine. What we're responsible for is what we're building here. I'm going to end with a story. I have a permission, PJ. Is your permission still granted? He's nodding. Funny thing happened to me some time ago. Because we all come to this from different angles, don't we? Some of us we feel very comfortable, sometimes we feel not so comfortable about different things. Maybe it's a theological perspective, a personal perspective, the history of other churches we've experienced. Maybe we're still working it through. We recognise that. That's fine. PJ Lucy's mother, Christine, was a good friend of mine. She had had some very difficult experiences in other churches in other parts of the country. Had a period outside of church life, quite a long period. Her husband had died. I took his funeral, which was a great privilege, right here. I took her funeral here much more recently. And at one point, after much thinking, she said, she came to my office while I was still leading a team before Terry took over, and she said, Martin, she's a very forthright lady, those of you who know. She had a stick, looked you in the eye, and was uncompromising in her means of expression. Want to become a member of this church? Good. I have a few problems. A few issues I need to sort out with you, right? Well, let's, let's have a little chat. I don't quite agree with you about the question of women in the church. Am I allowed to be a member? I said, of course. She was amazed. I said, you've got to think what you think. I don't want to violate your conscience. But if you're in this church, all I ask you to do is to respect the way we do things. And guess what? I'll respect the way what you think. And I will never, ever undermine it. And I will never, ever try and persuade you to think differently. She stood up, got a stick, walked across the room to me, shook my hand, said, thank you, I'm in. <laughs> we went downstairs and had a cup of coffee and that was it. We became best of friends on that day. And I was very, a great lady. I didn't ask her. I don't ask anyone to violate their conscience about what they think about these things if it's slightly different. But if we're going to work together, we need to have mutual respect, which we did. And I wouldn't have told that story without PJ's express permission. And I do that not to dishonour her, but to honour her as someone who held her conscience and wasn't afraid to say so. 
although her stick was a little bit intimidating, but there we are. <laughs> Our greatest enemy is the powers of darkness that don't want the kingdom of God to prevail in this nation. And one of the things he's always fought against is the partnership between men and women. So we need that to be very, very strong. Multi-layered, multi-generational. But the foundations you build it on also have to be thought through. This is where we stand at the moment. If we see any scriptural reason to change our position in years to come, we'll happily do it. And if you want to discuss anything further, then please do come along this evening, send your questions in advance, and I'll answer every question that's sent in as long as it's on the, on the subject. I won't answer any questions about the Euro 16 prediction. Should we stand together? In a moment, I'm going to hand back to Terry. I would like to pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for your wonderful purposes. We thank you that we worship a triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Such a mystery to us, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, that you came as our servant to die for us and be raised again for us. We thank you, you gave us that great commission and that great call to plant churches and build churches all over the world. And Lord, we want to be involved in that great commission. We want to understand your word better. And Lord, we want to understand ourselves better because we're always on a personal journey. So help us on both those things, Father. And help this church on our journey as we push forward, advancing your kingdom in different ways. Help us to build on strong foundations, Father. We trust you and we thank you for this day. Amen.